All right, so we're going to continue actually on the supremacy of the Word of God, which we started last time. And tonight we're going to focus on what's called the canon of Scripture. And the question that this seeks to answer is this. How did it come to pass that we have the 66 books that we have in our Bibles? How do we have that? Why do we have these 66 books and not other books? And so this is what we seek to answer this evening. Now, I'm using the word canon, and uh, the word canon here is not to be confused with another kind of canon, which is a piece of artillery. So uh, the word canon basically means some kind of general law or a rule or a principle or a criterion by which something is judged. And so this word canon has been used or has come to refer to the books of our Bible or the, you know, this, our Bible with 66 books in it. And so this canon of scripture then is used for the believer as a law or a rule or a principle or a criterion by which we judge our lives. Okay, so it is the canon of scripture. And so we consider, how did we come to this? How did we arrive at this during the course of the history of mankind? And, uh, you know, going back, all the way back to the creation of Adam and Eve. Now, there are several ways that scholars view the scriptures and uh, kind of identify or define the process by which we came with these 70 Uh, 66 books. So they'll talk about that the book that was written, let's say Isaiah or let's say Matthew, had a long history in the church. Okay, so it had been uh, received somehow and it was, it continued to be used within the church over a period of time for a uh, long history. It had a long history of acceptance and then at some point the church accepts it, draws it in as a part of its, you know, word of God, and, you know, thus, thus we have it all. And, and part of that longevity would have been, you know, is it theologically sound? Does it line up with what we know to be taught and all of that? So that, that's kind of the, the modern uh, scholarly approach of the history of how we came to these books. However, I want to kind of adjust that, and and this is not unique to me, so you're going to find, if you were to look into this and read, you would find a number, I mean many, many, many people who would kind of follow a different process. And so if we consider the process and we want to look at at it scripturally, and, and we have to remember back at our lesson from last week, and I'm going to repeat some of the things that we found, we find that the Word of God is unique. It is different. It is unlike any other book. It is not just a, a book that is to be put alongside other books written by men, but it is different. And so we talk about the Bible and the books of the Bible as having been directly inspired by God. All right, God is the one who spoke to us. Now, this follows along a, a principle that I ended with last week. So if we... we Look at God, and we consider him to be a personal God, right? He is a person. He is not a force like lightning or anything like that. He is a person. He is personal, and he has done all things, these things, for our sake because he wants us. He loves us. And when we have someone who loves us, or if there's someone that we love, one of the things that we would expect would be communication, right? So if God is alive and God is personal and God loves us, then he is going to communicate with us. We would expect it. 
And I use the illustration with uh, respect to my wife. I could tell her I love her, but if I never talk to her, well, you know, my, my uh, idea of love would just kind of fizzle out. I have to communicate with her if I truly care for her. And that's just how it is, not just in the love relationship of a husband and wife, but if we care for each other, we're going to come to each other, we're going to engage one another, we're going to... Um, Communicate with one another is just expected. So if God is alive and he is personal and he loves us, he's going to talk with us. And so to have a Bible is not a surprise. We should be surprised if we didn't have a Bible. And of course we talk about how God, being the almighty, eternal, powerful God, he can do it any way that he wants. And what he has chosen to do is to use people to inspire them in order to record his words. And so that's what we have, direct inspiration by God. And when God speaks through a man, in, you know, throughout the history of, of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God spoke, then what he is doing is he is moving on that person in order to either proclaim it and then at some point write it down in many cases, and we have the Word of God. And so we look at how God spoke through men. As a matter of fact, the definition of a prophet is that he puts his words, God takes his words and puts it in the mouth of his prophet, who then speaks it. Now that's kind of the way it is described. So if we look at some verses, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, here is a prophecy with respect to Moses. And it says, I will raise up for them a prophet. That's God raising up a prophet for them, the people. Like you, Moses, from among their brethren. And I will, and here it is, I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So you see that God is the one who is driving the message that comes forth from the prophet. The prophet is there. He is God's man. God puts his words in the prophet's mouth and the, the prophet speaks them forth to the people and they are responsible for obeying. Okay, they will do all that I have commanded them. Let's look at a couple of other verses that convey the same idea. The next verse here, Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. It says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill, uh, to fulfill 70 years. Now, this is, this is a prophecy concerning how long the people of Judah were going to be in captivity in Babylon. It was going to be 70 years. As a matter of fact, these, this same thing is going to be read by Daniel towards the end of the 70 years, and he's going to understand that the period of captivity is coming to an end. Anyways, notice what it says at the beginning here. It says, these words are going to be fulfilled. So it is the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? It's God's word spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah. That's what a prophet is. That's what a prophet does. He speaks the words of God. The words of God by the mouth of Jeremiah. And and uh, I wish I had uh, come across this verse last time, because this is a great verse of instrumentality, isn't it? The, Jeremiah's mouth is the instrument, and it's God's words through his mouth. So I, I like that. And it's not the only one. I found some other ones as well. All right, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9. So if we jump actually to Jeremiah, we see the same thing. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, Jeremiah's mouth. 
And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So again, the idea of a prophet. The prophet speaks God's words through his mouth. Jump to the New Testament now, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, the, the last phrase there, any private interpretation, sounds a little strange to us, but basically what that means is that the person who is speaking the Scripture is not speaking of his own private interpretation. He is not giving his own interpretation. And, of course, you know, that falls in line with what we have been talking about. The prophetic word, which you should heed, it, um, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, that no prophecy, okay, so here's the prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private or personal interpretation. Why is it not private or personal? Because it is given by God. It is His word. That the prophet delivers. So that's Second Peter chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty. Now, if we if we put these things together, if we talk about Scripture coming to people by direct insp- inspiration, and if what a prophet is doing is he is speaking the words that God has put in his mouth, well, there is a conclusion that follows from this. All right, if God is the one who is speaking and He's putting the words in His mouth then at what point should the prophecy be received? When should they hear it and receive it as the word of God? At what point? What? Immediately. Immediately. If God is speaking through his prophet, the word that comes from him, the people are expected to receive it immediately. And so that's our third point here. An immediate reception of the text as from God. Now, this really turns on the head this whole academic endeavor to try to see how the history of the church kind of took the Word of God and put it together and just kind of decided on which ones should be a part of it and, you know, which ones should not be a part of it. That just kind of dispels that because when God spoke through his prophet, it was to be received immediately. There, there was no delay. And we see support for that over and over and over again in Scripture. When God spoke, the people were expected to hear it, to receive it, and to obey it. So there's an immediate reception of the text from God. Now I say that because we're not looking at some council through, you know, as history passes. We're not looking at a, at a council or looking for a council as to when certain books were accepted into the Bible as Scripture. We're not looking for time to pass in order to test a book to see if it's, you know, sound theologically and if it fits what the church is going through. We're not looking for that. When God spoke, he expected his people to hear it and to obey it. And so, if... um, uh, It's kind of interesting because if there is this process of time, then when God speaks it, there's this period of time where the people are still without that word because, well, we have to wait and see, you know, if it's, you know, passes the test and, you know, if we can accept it. And that's just not God's uh, method of doing it. So if he delivered it, then he expected the people 
to uh, receive it right away. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22, it says, now, now this, is, um, this is one of those verses that talk about, well, how do you determine whether a, false prof- a prophet is a false prophet or a true prophet? You know, that, that, that would be an important consideration. If we're talking about men delivering the word of God, well, how do you know if a man is speaking rightly or wrongly? Because, again, you go all the way back to the beginning and you have the serpent, right, in the garden, and he's speaking on behalf of God, but falsely, twisting, twisting the truth in order to deceive. So this is, this is nothing new. You have people, false prophets, who claim to, pro- to speak for God, but in reality they are not. So there is always this, well, what do we do or how do we determine this? And this goes back to Moses, of course. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 2, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So what is the test? Whether or not it is the word of God, the test is this, that it comes to pass, which means that from the time the word is delivered, there is the expectation that what is going to happen Whatever he says. There's the expectation it's going to happen soon. That way, that's the way we know or determine if a prophet is truly speaking for God. There's this expectation of fulfillment. And uh, this becomes really interesting because then you have the prophecies of the Old Testament. And, and I really believe that any prophetic utterance not only had an immediate fulfillment back then uh, when it was given, but also a further maybe truer fulfillment a little bit later, and especially when we're talking about uh, the Messiah and the coming of the Lord. So there's this expectation of fulfillment that carries over even into the New Testament. Um, So just to give you an example, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is really big on quoting the Old Testament. So he's writing, Matthew is, he's writing the Gospel of Matthew for Jewish people. And for Jewish people, it's going to be important to make a tie between the Old Testament and the prophecies concerning Jesus and the Messiah and the life of Jesus, the Messiah. And so Matthew will trace the life of Jesus and he will tie a lot of the things that happened to Jesus, he'll, he'll quote from the Old Testament. So you find a lot of quotes in, in Matthew especially. And here's just one of the first ones. It says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. There again we see the the instrumentality. The Lord is speaking through his prophet saying. But the point here this, at this juncture is that Matthew is talking about the scripture being fulfilled because when God speaks a word, there is the expectation that his word is going to be fulfilled. So that's just the nature of what it means to be a true prophet of God. All right? So there's this expectation of fulfillment and, and this is kind of the process that we're going to keep on going back to as we move through the lesson tonight. All right, anybody have any questions before we go forward? Any comments or thoughts? All right, if you do, just uh, raise your hand at any time. So let's go to the next consideration then, and it's this, the Old Testament canon. So which of the books of the Old Testament, which of those books are to be a part of our Bible? Well, Here's the, the division that we have now. First of all, we have the law, and it's five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books are sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, 
because Penta means what? Five, the Pentateuch, you know, the five books. And these five books are written by Moses. So Moses is the author um, for these five books. And this is the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have other books. Uh, um, You have the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings. They're called the former prophets because the prophetic message during these periods of time, which is historical, uh, is a little bit different than the prophetic utterance from some of the others, which we'll talk about in a moment. So during this period of time, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, you had a prophet like Samuel, and you had a prophet like Elijah, and you had a prophet like Elisha. And they are kind of part of the narrative of the history that's going on. And so we read their stories and the accounts of their lives and the miracles that they did at the same time while they are you know, actively serving as a prophet of God. So those are the former prophet books, and then you have the latter prophets, which are divided into two. You have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and you have the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, the major prophets, it's not because they are more important than the minor prophets, and the minor prophets aren't minor prophets because they are less important than the major prophets. It's just a reference to the, the weight of the book. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, those are the heavy-hitting, long uh, prophetic messages, whereas Hosea, Joel, and the rest of them, they're pretty short, and you can read them really quickly. And um, anyway, these are the, the major and the minor prophets. And they're collectively referred to as the latter prophets because of the difference in the way that they communicated their word. Now, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 1 just to... Uh, refresh our memories about a particular method of God in revealing his word. Because it's, it, God, God is not kind of like, um, you know, like the horse with the, the things on his eyes, you know, just so he goes straight. God is not like that. I mean, if you just look at the, the creation of the world, you see the amazing variety of God. So you have in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, It says, God who at... Now, look what it says about God's prophetic message. He, at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. You see that? Various ways and at various times. In other words, there there is a variety in the way that God used his prophets. And it's kind of interesting. Sometimes the prophetic message came as a result of something that God told the prophet to do or something that happened to the prophet in the course of his life. So, for example, Hosea. What did, Hosea t- what did God tell Hosea to do right at the beginning of his message? Does anybody remember? What did God tell Hosea to do? To marry a harlot. God told Hosea to do this crazy thing to marry a harlot. So he marries this harlot and he has children. And the children are given even, uh, well, they're given strange names which reflect the relationship that God had with his people. And so how long do you think it takes for someone to marry someone, have three children, name those children, and then, and then you, know, you know, go on? We're not talking about a message on a Sunday morning that lasts for 30 minutes. We, we are talking about several years 
here of God working through this person in order to deliver a message. Now, we read it in 30 minutes, but it took Hosea a long time, you know, to go through that whole process. You understand? So, this is just an example of the strange variety, sometimes strange, it's not always strange, but the, the variety of ways in which God worked and moved through his people. So, there are other stories. Ezekiel is one of my favorites, some of the things that Ezekiel had to do that conveyed the word of God. Isaiah does some really strange things at times. And, and um, so anyway, this is, this is God speaking at various times and in various ways to his people. So that's, that's um, uh, how it comes to us. So these are the prophets and those are the prophetic books. And then we have some other books here. And these are the writings. So you have some poetic books, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. And then you have what has been collectively known as the five scrolls. Um, or, you know, sometimes they're just kind of put in with uh, the poetic books there. Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And so these are, oh yeah, and there's some more historical books finally at the end. The writings, Daniel, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So these are 39 books. And they make up the Old Testament as we have it. Now, the Hebrew, this is the Hebrew Bible too, and they have a word. This, this is the Tanakh. This is the Hebrew Bible containing these traditional books of the Old Testament. So this tradition goes way back, even prior to the time of Jesus, obviously. There is a threefold division. And so these, these 39 books are kind of divided into three categories for ease of, you know, inclusion or speaking. And so we have the law, which refers to the first five books of Moses, the law. Then you have the prophets, which would be everything else. Unless you have the law, the prophets, and the writings together, then you have uh, these three divisions for the entire Old Testament. And this is the Old Testament that Jesus would have had when he came to this earth. All right, any questions now? Good. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. It's the same. They're in a different order in the Old Testament. And uh, they have different names. Um, like uh, for, for the first five books, um, the name in Hebrew is the first word of the Hebrew text. So Genesis, we call it Genesis, which is, comes from the Latin name. But in Hebrew, it's the first word, Bereshit, which is in the beginning. That's the name of the book in Hebrew. And then in Exodus, I was looking up Exodus today. And uh, Exodus uses, Exodus is again Latin for the Exodus, you know, the leaving of Egypt. But in Hebrew, the name is uh, Shemot, which is the names. So if you look at uh, the Exodus chapter 1. Verse 1 says, now these are the names, that's how it reads in English, the names of the children of, of Israel. Now, the word for names, that's the Hebrew title for the book. That's, they call it the names. We call it Exodus. But anyway, besides that, it's the, it's the same. Um, there's no difference there. That was a good question. Any others? Yeah. The other question I have was, the 66 books count? Yeah.
Yeah, okay, so like First and Second Chronicles would have been like one, the book of Chronicles. And, and, and at some point, I, and honestly, I don't know at what point they would have been divided up, but it wouldn't have changed the content at all. Just, you know, when you have the versification, by the way, you know, the verse numbers, those, those aren't original. It's not like Paul wrote a little number, a big number one, and then a little number one, and then he wrote verse one, and then he put a little number two, and wrote verse two, and then... It wasn't like that. It's like you have the paper and you kind of fill it all the way in. And the verses, the verses and the divisions, uh, a lot of time. well, they, they were added later just for ease. I mean, if you're going to study like this, can you imagine if we were looking at the book of Romans and there were no verse divisions and I would say, okay, let's turn to the book of Romans and I'm like right in the middle, maybe a little to the left and, and you know, and I would try to describe where to look that way would be extremely challenging for the longer books. Um, so anyway, at some point in history, they inserted the versification, but those not, are not original. And so there would have been some book divisions. And, and there are some, sometimes there are some differences between the versifications of older periods and, and the current period. All right, good. Anybody else? Any other questions? All right, so let's go to... Uh, this next part here, the New Testament affirms the Old Testament. The New Testament affirms the Old Testament. So we're coming, we come to the time of Jesus and the apostles, and we see an affirmation of this scripture. So you have Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. It says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now you see that? The law and the prophets. So by using those two designations, the law and the prophets, we're talking about the law, which is the books of Moses, and the prophets, which is everything else in the Old Testament. These are broad descriptions for the books of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Uh, Here's the one, the second one, Luke 24, verse 44, which actually uses the three different categories. I called it the writings, but here in this verse it's called the Psalms, but it's the same thing. So we have uh, Jesus... These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So you have these broad broad words used to describe the Old Testament. Now at other times, these are the broad ones, and there's a lot of these, the law and the prophets. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you have, on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, who appeared to Jesus and the disciples. Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah are used to refer to the law, Moses, and Elijah the prophets, the law and the prophets. And so, you know, you have things like that that kind of come out through Scripture uh, from time to time. And, and even into the book of Revelation, you have these kinds of references um, that are meant to, you know, kind of bring in or draw in the Revelation of God. So anyways, uh, in the New Testament, you have these books that are quoted. So these are the five books of Moses. There's a quote in the New Testament of each of the five books. So, you know, for the New Testament to quote the Old Testament is an affirmation of those Old Testament books. So uh, you have those five books, and then here are the, these, other, these other books that are quoted in the New Testament. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Isaiah, Joel, Jonah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These, have, these, are, these are Old Testament books that are directly quoted in the New Testament. Now, besides 
being directly quoted, you also have allusions to other portions of Scripture. And I think almost every book of the Old Testament is um, referred back to in some way through these allusions. And there are many, many, many of them. Um, so this is, this is important. Uh, you also have the New Testament not necessarily quoting them, but referring to them by the name of the person that God used to write them. So you'll have the New Testament speak of Moses, referring to the books Moses wrote, or referring to Isaiah. Referring, uh, speaking of Isaiah, referring back to the prophecies he wrote, or David or, or someone else. So you have these, instead of calling it the book of Psalms, in Psalms, like we might do, it says, well, David wrote this concerning the Messiah or whatever. So sometimes you have the Old Testament referred to in that way by the instrument that God used to record Scripture. And then, of course, you have the word Scripture. I think it was in one of these verses we just read. Well, I'm not going to look for it now, but you have the word Scripture, which is a reference back to the Old Testament. And then you have um, this phrase, as it is written. Again, referring back to the Old Testament in a definitive way or or a way of expectation of fulfillment. It is written. That is, it is definitive. We should follow this. All right? Okay, any uh, questions about this? All right, so that's the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now we move into another section, and this is called the Apocrypha. Now these are writings, and I know this is kind of small, but uh, anyway, if you can, hopefully you can see some of it at least. But uh, the New Testament does not affirm the, the apocryphal books. They, uh, these apocryphal books are books that appear in the Catholic Bible. And so this is the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. And these books of the Apocrypha were added into the canon of Scripture at the Council of Trent in 1547 to 1540, I don't know, actually it was a little bit longer than that. I think it was a, a pretty long period of time here. This is happening, this is the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, and these apocryphal books were added. Now, I'm not going to get into the history, because at that point, what's happening in the middle of the 16th century? The what? What's happening in the middle of the 16th century, about 1520 and following? The, the Protestant Reformation. So, you have the, the, the Reformation which is taking place, and the Catholics are... I mean, you had one church at that point up until the Reformation. Well, the Eastern Orthodox, they split about 500 years before that. But anyway, you had um, the one church, the Catholic church. By the way, the word Catholic means universal, so that was kind of the only, the only church. And then at the Reformation, you had all of this reaction on the part of the Protestants and reaction from the Catholics. And the Catholics actually started their own counter-reformation and the council of trent is just kind of pivotal in spearheading that anyway they the catholics at the council of trent now this is 1547 this is a long time after jesus and the apostles i mean we're talking 1500 years here okay it's, this is a significant amount of time that has passed and they have books like uh, the first book of esdras or third esdras second book of esdras or fourth esdras tobit judith the editions of the book of Esther, editions to the book of Esther. Oh, by the way, let me just uh, 
The book of Esther is one of the books in the Bible, maybe the only book, I think, that does not mention the name of God at all. <laughs> so there was, there was some dispute about the book of Esther. Um, and what happens is that at some point, prior to the Council of Trent, that somebody came along and thought, well, you know, we can't have a book that doesn't mention God, and so they have these additions to the book of Esther which mention God. But uh, there's really no need to do that. Um, even though God is not specifically mentioned, it's like, you know, God is all around. He's just working all over. It's like riding a bike down, uh, it's like riding a motorcycle down the road. And, you know, God is kind of not mentioned, but all around. And then you hit something and you go flying into God. That, that's just how, you know, the book of Esther is. You just go flying into God. You, you just cannot avoid him. But anyway, you have additions to the book of Esther. The Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. Baruch, the letter, a letter of Jeremiah, which is sometimes at the end, put at the end of Baruch. You have uh, the prayer of Azariah and the song of the three young men. You have Susanna. You have Bell and the Dragon, which I really like, Bell and the Dragon. It's a pretty exciting story there. The prayer of Manasseh, first and second, the first and second book of Maccabees. Uh, which is a very important historical document. Now, these are the apocryphal books, and it's not that they are bad. Some of them are pretty good, and they have a lot of things that are written in it that are good, but it's not scripture. It's like, it's like I write a book, and uh, you're not going to make it scripture. You're going to read it, and you're going to like it, you know, all of it almost, except maybe for 1%. No, I'm just kidding about that. You know, you just, you're going to take it for what it's worth, right? You're going to take the good and say, well, this is goofy. I'm not going to listen to him at that point. But that's how it is with these books. It's not that they're heretical necessarily, but they're not scripture. Okay, so that's kind of the, the distinction. Now, by the way, there are other books, the pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha which are, they can be heretical. I, I might... I have a book of these, uh, these letters, these ancient writings. I'm going to read some of them. I'll read some excerpts next time. I don't have time tonight, but I'll read some, of, some excerpts from them, and you'll see how off they can be from Scripture. So it's like an, it's, it's, they're not even close, the pseudepigrapha. But um, the New Testament, doesn't, it affirms the Old Testament, but it doesn't affirm the Apocrypha. And then we have the Council of Trent, which is significantly later, where these apocryphal books have been added. So this is going to be a difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. So if you pick up a Catholic Bible, you'll find these other books in them. But they are not a part of our Bible. Okay, so next time, we looked at the Old Testament canon, canon the next time we're going to look at the New Testament. And with respect to the Old Testament, it's been pretty fixed. I mean, if you have it fixed before the period of Jesus, and, and Jesus is affirming it, you know, that, that's pretty established. But the New Testament, then, it gets a little stickier because we're talking about what happens after Jesus comes and how the church comes to receive the New Testament books. So we'll pick up on that, Lord willing, next time.